The Salt Grows Heavy is a what-if story. What if Ariel laid eggs and all of them were hungry? So, and I don't really do like an official intro or anything. Um, uh, so I'm actually going to kind of start with uh, telling you a little bit about my introduction to, to knowing of you as an author. So um, back when um, Nothing But Black and Teeth came out, I was in this weird uh, part of my life where I had um, been diagnosed with lymphoma. And so okay. I was uh, <laughs> I was like going through the whole like treatment journey and everything. And um, I don't know if I was doing chemotherapy at that point, but like to, to – you know, long story short on that one, I am healthy now. I got through it. So everything's good. We're on the good side of it. But in that time, I had heard about your book. And um, from the description of it alone, I was like, I'm sold on this book. I'm, I, this is definitely up my alley. I want to read this book. Um, and then I realized it's like, it's, you know, it's pretty short. Like, it's not. It, so I was like, this is great. This is this is going to be a quick read. I'm, I'm into this. I'm very excited about this. I buy the book. And um, I start to realize, oh, uh, I'm in a weird, bleak part of my life and, and I'm navigating myself more towards like books that are lighter hearted and, and more uplifting and everything. But I was like, it's still on my list. And it's like, that's the next book I'm going to read. And it just kept getting bumped and bumped. Um, and then uh, I listened to you talking to uh, Michael Wilson on This Is Horror and uh, I have to give you credit because you were very, I don't know if vulnerable is the right word, but very open to talk about um, your life and your life's experiences. And, um, but then I was like, I, I don't know if this is the right time for me to read, <laughs> to read this book. So it's always sat on the shelf. Like I need to, to respect this book and read it because everything I've heard about it is fantastic. And then just looking at the people in the back who are giving it praise and like hearing things, people talking about it, it, everything says yes. But like, I've always just, I think because of that, where I was in my life, um, it didn't get to do it. But so the salt grows heavy is my first thing I've read of yours, but it's because life kind of took me in a, on a road that I wasn't expecting. So, um, that's, that's kind of how I know you, uh, is, is from that. And, um, but just seeing the acclaim, seeing the people that I respect, seeing such nice things about you makes me more enthusiastic to read. And so when I got the chance to read this, I was like, nothing's stopping me right now. I need to dive into this. So (laughs) that was my, I know that was long winded and I apologize, but, um, I have a lot of enthusiasm, but there's this like thing with me right now where it's like, I I feel intimidated because I'm very new to knowing you as like uh, a professional that, uh, that I want, that I want to like experience more of their art. Um, I really appreciate you sharing all of that. Like if it's any consolation, it took me gone like about four or five years before I could watch anything, but like cute, fluffy movies after dealing with my dad's suicide and all of it. And it's hard. I know some people who reach into the darkness to find comfort, but when you're navigating so much pain, you don't really need to be dragged all the way back down over and over again. Sure. So I completely get it. And now I really want to put a disclaimer in most of my books. Do not read unless if you're in a dark place. This is a terrible idea. (laughs) Well, and that's what I thought was so um, 
like made like made me love uh Salkros heavy even more is that um and I I posted about it on my Instagram and I I'll just kind of paraphrase what I said it was um you know dense thick prose heavy dark imagery um but it's ultimately about the endurance of love is kind of what I took from it and so even though it's got a lot of darkness and um uh grim things going on like there's that real kind of thread of light that goes through it that you might not always see, but I feel is, is pretty Aww, prevalent in it. I appreciate that so very much. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I'm going to let you talk cause I've been talking too much, but uh, I guess, <laughs> and I'm also not asking questions, um, but I, I love a more of a conversational approach to things as, as far as the salt grows heavy goes. Um, I guess it, it's fair to call it a fairy tale. Right. Mm-hmm. Was, and that's intentionally kind of, I would say, because in the, even in the, like the first chapter or the beginning of the book, you talk about other, you reference kind of vaguely other fairy tales. So that was very intentional, I'm guessing. Very much so. Yeah. Um, uh, where, sorry. You go ahead. What was the question you were going to ask? Where, where does that come from? Is that something? In, Cause I was thinking I've never really paid much attention to fairy tales, but they've always been super fascinating to me. So did you have like a connection with them or was this like, I'd like to explore this as something new to me. I think I've always had a connection with myth and fairy tales, although not necessarily the kind that is popular in the West. I grew up in Malaysia. It was a really, was and still is really um, a multicultural country. Um, I grew up with, stories and legends from like Chinese communities, Malay communities, indigenous communities, everything. And Malaysia was, a, I keep saying it wasn't because I've, it's been so long since I've gone home. It is a place where all festivals are celebrated equally and all of the kids share the stories that they are told. Tradition is still incredibly alive in a lot of ways, but in a kind of agnostic sort of way. And on top of all of that, there are just so many ghost stories in Malaysia. So many little things about the dead, about the supernatural that I don't know necessarily came from a specific source or it was an invention by just regular folks that just got passed down over and over. So being steeped in that, I still gravitate back towards it because it is in some ways the first memories of life that I had. And a lot of the stories were incredibly grim. (laughs) I had guessed that that would be part of the answer, but um, so would you say that it feels almost like um, that it's just a comfortable, like, so it's, it's a tradition of storytelling more or less. So it just Mm -hmm. feels comfortable to tell a story in that way, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Cool. That's kind of what I got from what you were saying when I wanted to make sure I was, I was hearing it right. Because it was a very good summary of what I was babbling about. <laughs> but that's great. Um, uh, it, it, but um, like I kind of mentioned earlier, you, you kind of made vague references to some of the more kind of traditional what the you know Disney Channel might you know reference um, in the book very vaguely, um, uh, and I actually had to kind of go back and like read it again to like, because I was paying attention to different stuff. I wasn't like, but I picked up on that and I was like, okay, I think you vaguely referenced like Cinderella and um, something else. Um, yes. Uh, so wait, I don't know if I have a question there. I was just noticing. 
Um, was that just because like um, it's kind of what the audience would pick up on or just first in mind or, or something like that? Uh, neither of those actually. The salt grows heavy in a weird way is part of what seems to be a growing shared world between a bunch of novellas and short stories that I've been doing. And I think I've instinctively been borrowing from a lot of Western folk tales and using my own touches on them. Cool. My I was explaining it to my 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 girlfriend gets to hear all of the the stuff that I'm reading and I'm a very like empathetic person. So like often I'm explaining what's going on while I'm like crying and stuff oh, God. Uh, <laughs> because things really touch me. Um, and, uh, but I was explaining, uh, this, I was giving her like the real broad strokes of this while I was reading it. And she's like, Oh, so like it's pulling from like, not pulling from, but like, she's like, Oh, I could imagine. No, I'm sorry. I'll say it. I'll do justice to what she said. She said that makes me think of like the little mermaid and Pinocchio and stuff like that. So, um, because obviously this is a mermaid story. Um, you could like, and again, she's just drawing very, very vague references to like little mermaid. There's a prince involved. And so in the beginning of this, there's a prince involved. And so there's little kind of things. Uh, was that just coincidental? I'm guessing. Uh-huh. It was definitely inspired by the little mermaid. Uh, more specifically was inspired by this thing that I saw in nine gag maybe about 15 years ago when it was really popular. I don't remember because I'm in college. But it was this comic that was like, what if Ariel laid eggs? And it had Prince Aragorn. <laughs> Ariel in a bathtub and just things swarming out of her. And because I am who I am, instead of having cute little babies everywhere, I was like, what if all those little children of hers ate people? And they did. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely did. Um, so, okay, cool. That's actually kind of a way better uh, answer than I than I could have <laughs> hoped for. So I definitely appreciate that. I, I tried my, so I said my girlfriend mentioned Pinocchio and I was like trying to like figure out what the connection was there and I'm not super familiar with it, but then I looked it up and like the, the, the I think that the parallel she was drawing there was um, kind of the idea of um, the promise of like, giving something to some, like a youthful person wants something and then someone in power is promising them that like in a way like the the boy wants the the Pinocchio wants to be a real boy or whatever like very vague um I'm not trying to make you make a connection to Pinocchio I'm just kind of explaining what she said um I find it fascinating. Yeah, yeah so um but that's the that's the thing about whenever you read something you're gonna you're gonna see things in from your own kind of very specific perspective. It's generally the thing I love most about hearing from reviewers and stuff because I think some of all of that exists in my subconscious. I'm just not aware of it. And seeing people pull out the shreds makes me go, oh, actually, I absolutely realize now why <laughs> I'm doing these things. Huh. Yeah. Although I don't yeah. think I actively drew from Pinocchio. I do see the connection now. It's so, an interesting to, parallel. There's even a part where there's three doctors who have different opinions about something. So I thought that was an interesting connection too. Oh, uh, that was actually from a grim fairy tale, the three surgeons. Right on. Very yeah. cool. Um, one of the things in the book that I think could be maybe kind of an easy theme to pick out would be exploitation. Mm-hmm. So what like heavily uh, in the kind of opening, um, like 
not the origin story of of the main character but like where we meet that the main character but then also with what's going on with the 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 surgeons and the like the the boys in the in the little village um so was exploitation uh something that you were like specifically trying to explore in this book i think it's an idea that i explore in most of the work that i create again i grew up in malaysia um and while i was growing up it was an epicenter for sex tourism and there would be dudes rolling in from all over the world treating the AFAP people in Malaysia like we were cattle, like we could be bought, like we were there to be touched and prodded. Um, even today, you have what we call backpackers running around in Southeast Asia, literally begging for money so they could, can continue their trip through the Orient People have treated my home country and the region around it as a resource, as set dressing. They've misinterpreted how we are. They have said things that are not true about us. When I got to the U.S., I washed my natural accent out of my voice as quickly as I could. Because immediately it put me on the back foot of everyone else, no matter how comprehensive my vocabulary or anything else I was, people heard the accent first and they had expectations. They pushed in weird ways. So I've seen so many people exploit. I've seen so much attempts at exploitation. It's just a natural part of my work because I'm still, I think, wrestling with the impact of being around so much of that. Yeah. Um, well, that makes me think of like eight, eight ways I could take uh, a, a follow up to that question. But um, one quote I pulled that kind of, I think, um, I think connects to what you're saying uh, was when the main character said, there's nothing wrong with being a monster. And so my, I, I think in the beginning of the book, the setup very much is like, um, I was taken and I was, I was used and I was treated as property and, and all these things. Um, and we see this, this character at the beginning doing monstrous things, but it, it's in reaction to being treated horribly. And, and I really felt like when I saw that line, I was like, that's powerful because I fully support everything that this character did. And I fully support the fact that they are not um, apologetic you know, mm-hmm. for their reaction to the situation they were put in. Um, I really appreciate hearing that. And like, it's also something I strongly believe in. There are so many people preaching, like, turn the other cheek, be the better person. Just look away. Yeah. Um, so this is a really random segue. But a few weeks ago, I was on a subway going home and guys started getting incredibly racist. Started shouting obscenities, started insulting my ethnicity, all the other Asian people that were there. It started getting worrying and terrifying. Um, The doors opened and a bunch of um, these Asian folk managed to bolt out. Me and another girl, we got trapped at the doors And the guy kept going. And I remember so distinctly just 
glaring at him, making intense eye contact throughout, just furious that he would keep going like that. But and then he came up and tried to take a swing at the smaller girl I was standing next to. I stepped in, and he bonked me, and I bonked him right back in the face before the doors opened again. And the girl, who was a lot smarter than me, just dragged me out by the back of my shirt. Wow. And we took more, I ran into the next um, carriage. And I had a friend who was like, I don't think you should have punched him. And I'm like, he hit me. Well, he hit, tried to hit someone else. And your statement about that line makes me think of all the people who are sitting in the carriage who are completely silent on the topic. No one looked up. There were dudes, I think, who were like six feet plus. They kept their heads down. They stared at the phone. And I actually wrote about it in my newsletter, just wondering what would have happened if I hadn't knocked the guy back. Would they have at least moved their corpses if something terrible had happened? That's that, A, that's yeah. awful. And I'm sorry that you experienced that. Um, but, and then, like, that's the whole thing. People don't act and then they're legitimizing the bad behavior and they're empowering a person to continue to act badly. Um, and that's, it's inexcusable, you know, um, people should be stood up for or stood up against, I guess, not necessarily stood up for, but stood up against and they're doing wrong. Um, you have to push back against monsters. Sometimes you have to be a monster to fight back. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, you could look at, <laughs> like I, I'd have to imagine most, if not all like changes for the better in history came from, you know, I'll tell you a story because the, like, we're, we're talking, we're telling, in, we're talking in stories. And I like this when I was, uh, when I was young, I have a brother who's a year and a half older than me. And um, when we were little, you know, younger than four, he used to just push me around all the time, knock me over, knock stuff out of my hands. He was just, cause he was bigger and you know, he was just a little punk or whatever. But at one point, I must have just snapped or something, and um, he did something, and I just, as my little kid versus this other little kid thing, we I just beat the crap out of my older brother, and um, my mom naturally wanted to step in, and my my aunt said, no, 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 let him let him go, and you know, when it was all done, my brother never did that again, and everybody knew he had it coming because he was always he was asking for it, he was he was always being mean for no reason. And like, mm-hmm. at some point he needed to realize you can't act that way. So, mm-hmm. um, I think of that every time there's like, um, uh, a moment of revolution. I think of, I have, I can empathize with that because of the thing that I remember from not remember, but was told from childhood. But yeah, you're right. Every act of revolution was sparked by anger, by grief, by fury at what has happened to the people around you being quiet being small being afraid has done very little for us yeah yeah Which is i totally agree because we should be able to choose that path of pacifism right yeah it, it, it's like people are making choices for you kind of mm-hmm. which um they suck that sucks and it's it sucks that you have such a recent um recent example of of that kind of thing too um sorry to hear that mine goes all the way back to 40 years ago or whatever <laughs> uh, 
of, I get, it, it is the time of the pandemic, and unfortunately, certain political figures have made my specific ethnicity um, a target. Yeah. And this will unfortunately yeah. continue for a while. Yep. Yeah. Um, oh, that could be a whole, that could be a whole topic on its own. Um, mm-hmm. But so the counterpoint to that, not counterpoint, but um, the, the brighter side of, of the book. And I think the thing that really grabbed me was um, that relationship between the, you know, the main character and the plague doctor. Um, and it wasn't ever overtly, romantic but you could tell that there was like a like a connection and a dedication am i pretty close on that like it wasn't i feel like you didn't write it like we are in a relationship you wrote it as we're two people who are on a you know on a journey together and you know like our our love comes from you know uh our shared experiences and, and our dedication to you know being you know keeping each other safe or whatever it happens to be. Sometimes I'm not the most eloquent. So um, can you talk a little bit about like the kind of love side of things? Um, so a lot of this weirdly is inspired by my relationship with one of my cousins. Uh, we are incredibly close to one another. We have dealt with a lot of shit together. Um, he actually had a psychotic break, I think, in, when we were in our early 20s. And at one point, I remember going to his apartment and seeing him babble at the air. He suddenly grabbed me, pinned me down, and sort of told me with a lot of concern that the voices in his head were telling him to kill me. Uh, We took six months together to drag him out of that break. He is fully functional. Everything, Everything is good now. But... It was a terrifying experience. But at the same time, I think that sort of cemented my idea of love. It does not need a specific shape. It does not need to look a certain way. What matters is your devotion to one another when the other person needs you. And I think a lot of it went into the book. That again, just totally surpassing my expectations on answers. That's beautiful. <laughs> and I'm glad that like, so I'm glad that I kind of perceived that, that it wasn't necessarily like a stereotypical romantic situation. It was just a love of the two people who like were devoted to each other. Yeah. Um, which I love. Uh, I, I've, this is going to be um, not the best connection, but I've always loved stories where it is, um, I call it friendship as a relationship mm-hmm. where the, the, there's, there's no romantic situation necessarily involved, but everything they go through are the types of things that you would kind of expect to hear in a, in a, in a traditional love story or, or something like that. Um, and the example that comes most readily to mind is, um, the TV show Hannibal, Mm-hmm. where the two characters, obviously Hannibal and, and Will Graham, um, they are absolutely in a relationship. And one could argue that there's actually something romantic going on, but like it's, it's not, I, I call it like a, a relationship as friends or a friendship as a relationship. Um, and I, 
I think it takes to me, it takes away the expectations of like them doing the things that a relationship's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And it just shows you what like the interplay of people who care about each other are. Yeah. Um, I, I really agree with that. And also, I think we just kind of need more of that friendship as a relationship thing. Having romantic love be front and center in everything just kind of annoys ever loving crap out of me. And I also think that like it's harmful to us as a society because there are a lot of people who get swept up by this idea and they prioritize romantic relationships to the point that they allow platonic and familial relationships to degrade. And it makes no sense. Like romantic relationships aren't necessarily going to be the thing that carries you through life. If you look at life expectancy, most women or AFAP people can't expect to be widowed at some point, simply because AMAP people do not live as long. It's just, it's, ugh, it drives me nuts. <laughs> uh, no, and I totally agree. And I think from a storytelling perspective, it makes for uh, more opportunity to tell, like, um, like the 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 get to the meat of the story kind of without all those like expectations and i think that without um without telling a story that doesn't get it right like i think you, you sometimes those types of like a ro- very romantic love story gets trapped in i have to hit the beats in order to like tell this story and the beats just kind of get in the way of it being meaningful maybe but i, I could just be like biased about that the other thing that um definitely stood out for me uh, in the book was that, um, and I'll just put it this way. I definitely had to look up a bunch of words um, and it, it was told in a, in a kind of in a first person situation. So we're, we're getting it from the main character's perspective. Um, and I was like, is this just this, the author's style or is this the character? So I just kind of quickly, cause again, this is the first thing I've read of yours. I leafed through this a little bit and I was thinking, okay, it's not, it's not, it's definitely a style of this specific story. Is that accurate? Yeah. Um, although that brings up something really interesting. So I work in video games for like my day job. I do narrative, I write dialogue and things like that. And this will probably surprise some people who have read my work. But my writing style in my day job is incredibly spare. It's incredibly lean. I am usually the person going up to uh, my peers going, you know, we can probably shorten that sentence a little bit more, make it a little bit more efficient. So books are where I indulge my love for writing for the Baroque. English is my third language, actually. And I kind of mostly learned it reading on my own. And I think from the ages of a... Nine to 15, somewhere around that, you know, not quite teenager stage. I used to read the dictionary for fun because I was completely (laughs) and utterly obsessed with words and the little nuances, the meanings of the specific terms for specific things. It just delights me in a way I don't know how to completely explain so all of that got transferred into my books. So it's definitely a style I've developed out of love for poetry and a love for words. And I think it's well because my first language is a tonal language. There needs to be a musicality to my okay. writing as I work on it. 
Otherwise, it just sounds kind of droll to my brain. That's fascinating. Um, do you did you do you get? So, I'm going to preface this by saying I have to imagine that based on the quality of your writing, people have a lot of faith in it. Do you get much pushback from like uh, editing situations about what when words are used and why, or uh-huh. is there a lot of faith in you? There's a lot of faith in me. And also, hilariously, I've had an editor point out sections that I added on a rewrite were much too simplistic in tone, and she wanted them more Baroque. Great. That's exciting. Um, um. But there are also a <laughs> rarefied group who are just splendid at the language themselves. That's, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Um, I hadn't thought of it that way. But yeah, of, of all people, probably they yeah. would be the people who... Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but I think that, and that's, so I read this on, um, the Kindle app. It was like a NetGalley, um, advanced copy. And, um, so I benefited from just being able to tap on a word and like do look up. Um, but I, as a reader, love it when there's a little bit of a challenge. Like I feel like if it's all laid out for me, um, that's fine, but I love it when I have to do a little bit more. Um, and so looking up a quick definition was kind of fun for me, but do you get pushback from readers at all? Or I have to imagine you have a type of audience that might, might be into that kind of thing. Oh, I definitely get pushback from readers, but not every book is meant for every person. Like everyone has their own preferences and I think that's perfectly fine. Although I've gotten one or two weirdly threatening emails about my books and I'm like, you don't have to finish the book. I don't know. What to say? Don't have to be so angry at me. I did not make you buy it. Yeah, right? Threatening, like actual threats against you? Oh, not so much threat. Well, sort of, kind of, some implication about how angry they are and what they will do if they see another book that uses this style. It was all very strange. That's all right. Well, I guess that you're going to get... You get all kinds, you know, <laughs> um, I'm in order to honor, um, the, the time that we have the next thing I, I just kind of want to go into what's coming up in the future. And I got really mm-hmm. excited about, um, the dead take the a train. Um, and I feel like, and I could be wrong about this. Um, this is like one of those things where it's like information entered my brain before I knew it was important because I was listening <laughs> to Richard Kadri on, um, I think this is horror. I'm going to mention them all the time because they're uh, great. They're very good. Um, and, uh, I think I was listening to Richard on their podcast and he had mentioned this collaboration with you, the dead take the a train, which I think is a duology. Um, yep. and just very enthusiastically talking about it, but also you and, mm-hmm. um, I have only read um, very little Richard Cadry, so I it, I know that I, I it sounds like I never read anything, but I've I've come to terms over the years of being like a book reviewer and doing podcasts about book that like you're never going to know everything, man, and I just have to like make myself comfortable with that. <laughs> I'm just going to jump in to say like there's a joy in not knowing everything. I think sometimes we're pushed to know everything, to do everything. <laughs> we're really maximalists about productivity and our especially in American culture. And it's just kind of ridiculous to I me. Mean, I personally find joy in the idea that I will always, there will always be more books than I can read in a lifetime. It just, it's such a luxurious feeling for me. 
You know, that there's a surfeit of just gorgeous, wonderful things out there that I may not experience, but someone else is, and they're just going to love it. That I, I, you just made me feel so good because, like, um, I, I've always had this kind of thing in my head where um, there are certain situations where it almost is like a better outcome to not know the thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I can just carry that around. Like, I know I don't know that. Like, so I've I've had that kind of. I've celebrated the uh, the the unknowing um, sometimes. So it makes me happy that you said that. <laughs> what joy is there in flattening the world? It really isn't. It just. Uh, Sorry, I I know you had a question ish. I figured this completely off track. It's a great track, though. <laughs> but I was going to recommend hilariously a book to you, Robin McFarlane's Landmarks. Uh, so McFarlane in this book kind of goes through all of the words he kind of magpied from various topographies, like mountain folk, the o- uh, oceans, you know the Arctic and things like little specific words that exist everywhere and are mostly falling out of use. And in the beginning of the book, he talks about how losing those words kind of disenchants us. When we look at a mountain range and the only thing we can say is mountain, it flattens our love for it, our understanding of it, our concept of it. And so just, having lots of details, having little things that you just don't know and you keep having to explore because they define the world. It's, it's just it's so good. That's an amazing perspective. Wow. Oh, That's also, great. Really good. Yeah. <laughs> well, then I'll definitely have to like work it in. That sounds really cool. And I'm glad that we randomly touched on that kind of thing. There's yeah. Um, yeah. I like there. Yeah. There's a wonder to it. That makes me very happy. Um, so I guess my very long winded thing was basically going to be, uh, about how did, um, this collaboration come about. And it sounds like you're kind of besties, at least from like the way he talks uh-huh. about you. So like, uh, do you have, is there anything that you want to talk about with that? Uh, Richard Cathery once punched a horse in the face <laughs> and it's my favorite story of his. Um, as the story goes, uh, Richard, please feel free to scream at me on Telegram if I get this wrong and you're watching this. He once went somewhere with an ex of his, and the ex got onto a horse along with the ex's nephew. And so Richard, being a big dude, was like, I'm just going to lead a horse along the mountain range or wherever they were. And it all along. And the horse gets a little bit uppity, starts bouncing around, just like, tries to kick a little bit and he starts getting really worried because he's like, Oh God, if the horse properly rears, uh, my partner and this kid is just going to tumble off a mountain. Um, so he's getting progressively more terrified. The horse is getting progressively more antsy. And one, at one point when the horse tries again, it jumps, like pulls up. He yanks it down. If I recall, and just kind of punches the horse dead in the muscle. <laughs> And then the horse stops, just so it glares at him. And we're just like calcul- apparently calculating in his head, going like, oh, I, I might be about 5'11 and a big dude, but that is that, that, that thing's a lot bigger than me, and it's going to kick a hole through my chest. But apparently that punch was all the horse needed because it was the perf- the calmest, happiest horse ever <laughs> as he wow. walked it off. <laughs> anyway, this is a story how, how Richard Gadry punched the horse. Uh, I adore the dude. We share a lot of sensibilities, and I think that's kind of how we started 
talking about collaborating on a thing. I got really excited about doing it. It just kind of happened. Awesome. Um, yeah, he speaks very well of it. It sounded like it was something that um, he was very excited to do as well. So um, I read I read the, the description on Amazon and I totally it totally just emptied out of my head, like almost immediately because I was like <laughs> doing a lot of prep for this and everything. So what's the general idea um, uh, about about that one? A down and out magical practitioner like Constantine who makes way worse decisions decides one day that you know she kind of needs a guardian angel to help her choose a lot of shit in her life and dealing with a terrible ex that she still has to work for. And because it's a book by Richard and I, everything goes to several literal hells. So kind of like Jessica Jones meets Hellraiser with my slightly worrying knowledge of human insights. I wanted to be a forensic specialist while I was growing up. So. <laughs> that never went away. That's awesome. I, uh, when I was communicating with um, the, the person at Tor about setting this up um, in the, in the conversation about getting an advanced copy of, of the, the salt grows heavy. I said, are you repping this next book too? Can I get on like the, can I get in early on that? <laughs> so um, I might be bothering you or Richard or both to try and talk to you again, maybe later this year. Uh, <laughs> I'm really enjoying this podcast. So like, I, I'm more than happy to talk again. Good. I was, I was, I was nervous. I always like to go in knowing someone as much as possible. And I was really nervous because I was like, I've read this one thing. Um, and, you know, who knows? So I'm glad, I'm glad that. We've we found cool things to um, kind of connect about and everything. Okay, yeah, I'm going to talk about genre really quick um, because I feel like it would be very easy to put you solidly into horror in general. Um, do you see yourself that way, or do you have kind of a different image of of or your your where your writing would go, or do you even not really think in those terms? I don't really think in those terms, but Again, the sheer amount of body parts in my books makes me feel like I need to stay in horror. Otherwise, someone is going to get a very bad surprise. <laughs> well, oh. I think you're going to get uh, your, your honorary at least. At least honorary. <laughs> um, I, will, I will add that one of my favorite, favorite reviews of all time. Um, so for, for a lark, I wanted to see if I could do a paranormal rom-com. With every single one of the tropes, I could find just stuff it all into a book and make it coherent. It was a personal challenge I gave myself. Uh, it was called Barely a Lady. It's out of print now, unfortunately, because the imprint is no longer around. And there was a review on Hammers and Bone, my Lovecraftian neo-noir thing, where the reviewer is like, so I read Barely a Lady. I loved it. It was so funny. And then I immediately decided I had to buy Hammers and Bone. It was it was different. But once I got over the difference, I really liked this book. It just took a moment. Like, <laughs> it still makes me so happy to think about. That sounds great. <laughs> That's awesome. Because I'm um, just picturing this really nice middle-aged lady just like opening the book and going, oh, no. Oh, no. I can't get rid of this. That, and I wonder how much like... Um, yeah, I, I feel like 
I'll, I'll go along for a ride as long as, you know, I'm enjoying the ride, even if it's got, you know, some twists and turns I wasn't expecting. So whenever there was an element of, of that, and I love the idea of, um, finding a writer that you just really enjoy their style, because I think that that might even open you up to kind of exploring things you wouldn't with like an unknown. I absolutely agree. There are definitely a lot of people out there where I'm like, you know what? I will read anything to write. Yeah, that well, and that's the thing. When I started, I so I started doing a podcast back in um, like 2011, and I was absolutely the person who didn't really understand how to uh, discover uh, new authors or explore finding their contemporaries and like branching off and and all those kinds of things that I definitely have kind of like the burden of I know too much now because there's like I feel like every uh, month there's another author where where I'm like I'm going to read everything that she reads i'm going to read everything that they read um and so it's like but then it goes into your thing where it's like it's great that i'll never be able to read everything um there's always something good that i i have access to so i'm going to take it that way (laughs) we are just going to be lousy with treasures until the day we die it's a nice one that um, is a is a topic of conversation that's come up with me lately, specifically with horror, though, where um, uh, it started around 2018, where I was talking to Josh Mallerman and um, he was very excited about he said there was a horror renaissance going on and it was really a time for horror. And then he mentioned like some things that Brian Keene had said. And then I talked to other authors and everybody kind of feels like there's like a movement in horror right now where uh, I don't know if it's just like. Um, I don't think horror just suddenly got good, but maybe it's the um, amount of horror that is, you know, being given attention to in the world or something like that. But regardless, I, I, I feel it. I agree with what he said, but I don't know. I don't know if you even really follow horror too much or, or not. Oh, I think it's a result of globalization that marginalized people are finally getting a, their, space on the main stage um indie presses like neon hemlock like undertow they're taking chances that the bigger imprints won't and there are also a lot more editors in the big imprint willing to take chances that like slant away from what we consider traditional horror and i think horror is especially exciting right now because of the marginalized communities um sharing the stories especially because so many of those marginalized communities come with their own traditions, their own mythology, and they're pulling from di- different experiences and different paths. And it's raw and it's interesting and it flows in such a different way. And I think the last part of it is because there is just so much good content from so many people who are so aware of what it is like to be exploited, to be hurt. Horror has become more of an exploration of the vulnerable side of humanity as opposed to the weird, creepy exploitation things that just were everywhere at one point. Yeah, yeah I, you said it perfectly. Um, I was going to try and say something like that, but you said it way better than I could have. <laughs> um, great. Well, um, I absolutely appreciate um, you taking the time and taking the chance to talk to someone you didn't know at all. And I have to imagine that this is probably something that you're going through a ton right now, but, um, 
I really loved listening to you when I was um, listening to you on other podcasts. And I was like, man, if I, if I could find a way to have a conversation with this person. Oh, so well, so. I appreciate it. <laughs> I was so thank you so much. I'm sorry. I always worry that I babble. No, well, I would I wouldn't say that that happened one bit um, here, um, and it was great conversation. So I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so um, much. And now I'm going to absolutely bother you uh, when when that comes out to uh, to talk to me some more. I'm so looking forward to that.